0: are listening to You Totally Made That Up, and we are a bi-weekly history podcast that tells you about true stories from around the world that are weird, strange, bizarre, have elements of the supernatural or paranormal, anything bananas, but like I say, they are true, and what we mean by that is that we like facts, none of this the lore says or the legend goes stuff, we gotta have names and dates and all that jazz. And I am Nash. And I am Tiff. We are your lovely hosts. And when we last left you, ooh, just laugh. And when we last left you, okay, let me like bring that down a notch. <laughs> okay. Cause when I edit out the part where I'm laughing, I might leave this in. I don't give a shit anymore. We're on episode like fucking 19, and I'm just <laughs> exhausted. And when we last left you. We told you that in honor of Thanksgiving, we were thankful for modern medicine due to each of us having surgery and injuries over the course of this year, which then led us to nutty cures from back in the day, which then led us to discovering that two of the world's favorite products surprisingly have a background littered with the woo. And you know, I put that in the titles of these, and I don't know if I've ever said what I mean by that. So I will tell you now because it just occurred to me, some of you might not know what the hell woo means. I mean, I'm sure you have an idea, clearly, because of the context, but woo is a term anybody can use, of course. But when I started really honing my critical thinking skills and putting on my skeptics hat, that's a term I heard and saw used a lot in skeptic circles. And I want to say that it comes from James Randi, who's like the Houdini magician, illusionist mythbuster of our times. And all woo means is basically just, Stuff that is pseudoscience, but it kind of sounds like science. It hits, but it hits you as just, oh, that's too perfect. That's too good to be true. And so part one of this, it falls into that because we talked about how cornflakes came from a dude who ran a business built on woo. So it's, it's, you get what I'm saying. Like he wrapped all of it up in a bow that sounded scientific and medicinal and it was not. So there's that. Oh, and also wanted to do this disclaimer one more time. We did it in part one, but I'm doing it again. We also discovered during our research that Drunk History has done segments on both of these and we are not copying them. That was a total fluke. We're not copying them. So, yeah. But we're going to link you to both of the segments because they're fantastic and they're required watching. Like I say, we're thankful for Modern Medicine, products based in Woo. We were shocked to find out about both of these. And so I did part one, which is cornflakes. And in this part, Tiff's going to tell you about more woo that surrounded another beloved product. So I'm going to shut up and Tiff's going to take it away.
1: And here we go. I'm hopping back in time just a little bit. I'm going back to the Civil War, which of course we touched on. We talked about the death toll. We talked about the emotional toll that it took on family members and survivors. Not only did they end up turning to seances and ghost photography and all of that fun stuff to try and cope, but they also turned to drugs and alcohol. Hard to imagine.
0: Shocking. No one does that anymore.
1: Coping mechanisms. <laughs> Ooh. So, of course, people have been drinking for ever since alcohol was discovered. Society has enjoyed it. And by 1830, the average American over 15 years old consumed nearly seven gallons of pure alcohol a year, which is three times as much as we drink today. Whoa. Yeah. And I mean, you got to consider that's pure alcohol. So that's like the breakdown of what's actually alcohol out of what you're drinking. But that's a significant amount. Yeah, they were getting tipsy. They were enjoying themselves. But it was also kind of an all-day buzz. I mean, it was like, wake up, eggs, coffee, alcohol. Then you had a little bit more with your lunch and then some with an afternoon snack. You had to have some with dinner and then you've got your nightcap. So it was, you know, just alcohol all day for everybody.
0: I mean, at least here's, here's my perspective. Back, the further back you go, you know, the more dirty water is. And so at least in this respect, it, it's it's a beverage that has been boiled like hell in a still. and it, at least it's purified to some degree. I mean, sure, granted, your liver's angry, but and you're not terribly hydrated. But I that versus, you know, fecal infested river water or something, you know, so anyway, I digress. Options are limited, I guess so,
1: you know, we get to the Civil War, the war is going on, and you got to put some limits on how much people are drinking. I mean, they even rationed the soldiers. Now we've got all of these people that are suffering from these injuries, and liquor does not cut it at all. One soldier who suffered a really, really terrible wound in battle was Southerner John Stythe Pemberton. And, you know, he was not just some nobody who signed up for the war. He was a businessman. He was a pharmacist and he was a chemist. He was born in 1831. He grew up in Rome, which is in close proximity to both Chattanooga, Tennessee and Birmingham, Alabama. So he wasn't, you know, just some, you know, country boy. He attended the Reform Medical College of Georgia in Macon. And by 19, he was actually licensed to practice botanical principles, which is plant-based medicines used to detoxify the body. That was kind of his focus at that time. And it wasn't really popular or very well-respected. But he chugged along. By age 22, he actually had his own wholesale retail business. That same time, he got married. And then by the next year, he had a kid. And then he ended up getting his graduate degree in pharmacy before the end of that decade. He opened his business in 1860, called it the J.S. Pemberton and Company of Columbus and claimed, we are direct importers manufacturing all the pharmaceutical and chemical preparations used in the arts and sciences. And it was a unique operation at the time. They were actually high-tech labs that he opened and he was operating out of. They were creating medicines. They had testing facilities. And he ends up operating this business for just over two years until he joined the Confederate Army in May of 1862. When he joined, he was ranked as first lieutenant. And then actually in a battle defending the city of Columbus that ended up successful, he was named Lieutenant Colonel. He remained a soldier until Easter Sunday in 1865 when he was injured by the saber of a Union soldier. And this was a deep slash to his chest. It was a really nasty wound. And he's dragged off the battlefield into a medical tent. And Basically, the doctors looked at him and they were like, well, we can't really do anything for him. But at least we can help him not feel how awful that truly is. So they dosed him up with a whole bunch of morphine. He was absolutely expected to die from how extensive his wound was. And he was knocked out for several days. But apparently it just wasn't his time. And he slowly, slowly recovered. At this point, there are no therapies at the time that are looking to help you, you know, rehab your body and really rebuild it was more about finding ways to live with the pain. And this ended up developing morphine addiction in pretty much everybody. And the, at this point, the doctors are really just injecting people with it left and right. If we were a different kind of podcast, we'd probably dig into that being the real start of like the opiate drug epidemic that's still going strong today.
0: Right. But well in- well, no, I can't believe he didn't die of sepsis hmm. That's what's unreal to me is that infection didn't kill him.
1: hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of things that could have gotten to him, but somehow he he got through it. It was because he had a contribution to society that he still needed to handle.
0: So foreshadowing, foreshadowing.
1: <laughs> but I will encourage you if you are curious and kind of want to look into it. Um, some of my sources, they'll be in show notes so you can kind of look into how far back. The, the battle against drug addiction really goes and when it kind of kicked off in the United States. Now Pemberton, back to Pemberton. He's not just an enthusiastic morphine user. He was actually his own supplier. Because he was a pharmacist, he was able to get a steady supply and he opened a location in Atlanta specifically for that purpose. And then of course, luckily, or maybe not so luckily, kind of depending on how you're looking at it, He lived in what's really considered the golden age of patent medicine. And in part one, Nash briefly touched on it. And um, I want to go and take a second and kind of expand a little bit on what patent medicine is. Patent medicines have been around since the 1700s. And at that point, they were more of medical elixirs. Later, when pharmacology became more popular, it became the start of like over-the-counter medications. Now. A lot of them were nonsense. There's actually a list on Wikipedia that notes some of their uses, and I'm uh, just going to go ahead and quote right here because there's so much. Patent medicines were supposedly able to cure just about everything. Nostrums were openly sold that claimed to cure or prevent venereal diseases, tuberculosis, and cancer. There was one specific item that claimed to cure cholera, neuralgia, epilepsy scarlet fever, necrosis, mercurial eruptions, paralysis, hip diseases, chronic abscesses, and female complaints.
0: So I, lo- <laughs> I love how generic that is. You know, just the lady bits. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: ladies are crazy. So they've got lots of problems. So yeah, these are cure These are things that people are selling that They're going to make you feel better no matter what's going on. And not all of them were bullshit. There are a lot of these medicines that have actually survived. A number of brands and consumer products that date from that era are still on the market. You can still buy them today. And thankfully, a lot of the ingredients have changed from how they were formulated originally. But you guys are going to recognize some of these brands. There's Anacin, Bayer Aspirin, BC Powder, Dones, Geritol, Goodies Powder, Ludin's Throat Drops, Phillips Milk of Magnesia, and Vicks VapoRub. There's actually a you know, longer list. Those are just some of the more popular names that I definitely recognized. So the biggest draw of patent medicine was that no matter what was bugging you, whatever your ailment was, this medicine was going to make you feel good. You know, they're being told that they're ingesting these exotic and these native ingredients that people are getting from Native Americans that are sharing their secrets, and they're getting these ingredients from around the world. And these ingredients are often including and certainly not limited to opium, THC, ethanol, and grain alcohols, laxatives, and then, of course, the one that Pemberton and that we are going to focus on cocaine. So a brief little thing about cocaine here. It comes from the coca plant in South America. Natives would chew on the leaves and they would get bursts of energy and awareness. In
0: 1859, an Italian... I'm sorry. And awareness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they were alert. Uh, I don't know
1: how else to put it. (laughs) <laughs> I've never done cocaine, okay. so I can't say how they were feeling. I just
0: invented calculus! Woo! <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can count all the stars in the sky! <laughs> they, were, they were busy, you know, it helped them. Anyways. 1859, an Italian scientist named Paolo Montegazza published a paper on the potential benefits of the South American plant called coca. In 1860, a German chemist named Albert Niemann was fucking around with the leaves and discovered that the white powdery substance that he got from them would make his tongue go numb. And around that same time, a French chemist named
0: (laughs) something. You want to add? No. I counted every ceiling (laughs) tile, but my tongue is numb.
1: Hey, you gotta you gotta try it out. What was it that you were saying that the uh, archaeologists archaeologist would lick something to find out if it's bone or rock? Yeah. <laughs> same science same methods.
0: <laughs> I could run real fast. <laughs> My tongue don't work, but I could run real fast. hmm
1: So Coca is getting around. And it's the same time when a French chemist named Angelo Mariani is messing around with a combination of wine and coca leaves, which becomes the first mass-marketed cocaine product. And it's called Vin Mariani. It's a combination of Bordeaux and coca leaves. It was estimated to contain about 7.2 milligrams of cocaine per ounce. And it was marketed that it would, quote, restore health and vitality. And I am sure it it felt that way. Oh boy, I mean this was this was heavily heavily marketed. It was claimed to be an appetite stimulant, a digestive aid, an energy booster. I'm actually going to read from an ad here because it's amazing the things that it listed that it was going to heal: nervous troubles, dyspepsia, malaria, anemia, loss of sleep. Which, I'm not sure about that one. What? What? Maybe the alcohol? Whatever. Okay. Consumption. Overwork. La Grip, which was the flu. Nervous prostration. General debility. Tardy convalescence. Loss of blood. Impotency. Melancholia. Seasickness. Throat and lung troubles. All wasting disease. And all fevers. etc., cetera, et cetera. I need to add that it was also safe for kids. So hooray, everybody enjoyed a cocaine wine. Oh, no. Yeah. The the only thing was that you just had to have what you were giving. Oh, of course. Of course. You know.
0: Because they're just small adults. That's bad. That's bad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, a lot of this, a lot of the information that I'm listing off about the Vin Mariani comes from a nice, succinct article from Atlas Obscura. So I, I hope you guys check that out in the show notes too. But this company, uh, Mariani, they went really hard on the advertising. They were commissioning art for the ads, they used well known names. So, I mean, they were having these people, celebrities of the time, and they were enjoying the wine and they were not shy about it. So they had. Ulysses S. Grant, Thomas Edison, Queen Victoria, Jules Verne, and my personal favorite, Pope Leo XIII. He ended up awarding Vin Mariani with a Vatican gold medal and, quote, the pontiff hailed the effects of fortifying himself with the tonic wine when prayer was insufficient.
0: I am, I'm, and I'm picturing... Just a totally shit faced Ulysses Grant out there <laughs> leading the church <laughs> can we give? can we give some of this to the horses? Let's make the horses run faster, faster,
1: mhm, yeah, you know you just had to toss back a glass and you know you'd feel that holy spirit, you'd feel whatever you needed. it was gonna boost you. you were gonna get going,
0: oh, I imagine you would see Jesus like. <laughs> You'd be so fucking high. (laughs) Yes, Lord. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, what did I say earlier? That um, there was 7.2 milligrams of cocaine per ounce. And there was actually a a little line in one of the sources that said, typically when you are like snorting a line, that's like 24 milligrams. So you you have a full glass and you've got the alcohol and you've got the cocaine going for you which was the reason that it worked so well. When you combine cocaine and alcohol together, a third chemical compound called cocaethylene is actually formed and the intoxicants metabolize in the liver and it creates an intense psychoactive that's more euphoric, powerful, and toxic than cocaine or alcohol alone.
0: So that's what I was thinking is that to some degree, the depressant and the stimulant, Would get not canceled out, but I was wondering if the stimulant element would come out more because of the like you're saying that ratio. Mm -hmm. It's lower in the ratio of the depressant, just enough to where you probably felt the buzz, but not the the total gorking of (laughs) of the alcohol. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I mean,
1: people loved it. People loved this wine, and yeah, if that's the way it's making everybody feel yeah, I'm sure they loved it. So let's hop back to Pemberton. He's been recovering from his wound. He's been self-medicating with morphine since the end of the war. And at this point, it's really starting to mess with him. He's having some serious health issues as a result of his morphine addiction. So I did go and look up what some of the side effects of morphine addiction would be. Short-term effects include severe respiratory issues, depression, coma, hallucinations, decreased sexual drive and performance, nervousness, mood changes, you know, sleepiness. And then long-term side effects include depression, suppressed immune system, restlessness, severe constipation, collapsed veins, and confusion. So he's trying to find some alternatives because it's really messing him up. And he tries the Vin Mariani and he's like, this is some pretty good shit. And then he thinks a little bit further and he's like, hey, I could do this because he's a chemist and he's a pharmacist. So he knows all of this shit. So now it's 1885 and he creates Pemberton's French wine coca. And he's kind of riding on the coattails and the success of the Vin Mariani. But his is different because he combined it with other extracts. So he added the cola nut, which added caffeine. He also added a leaf from the Central American Damiana shrub. And this apparently contained aphrodisiac properties. So good stuff, right? Not quite. 1886, the temperance movement takes hold in Georgia and laws get passed prohibiting alcohol. It's been going on for a while. It really kicked up in the 1830s because, as I mentioned earlier, people were drinking all the live long day, and it obviously was having effects on the family. People were losing jobs, becoming abusive, there was cirrhosis of the liver, and and so on and so forth. So Georgia goes dry, and Pemberton has to tinker with his formula. So let's stop for a second and talk about what exactly temperance means. The basic definition of the word is moderation of voluntary self-restraint and has, quote, been described as a virtue by religious thinkers and philosophers. You can find the concept across many cultures going back as far as you can imagine and in religions such as Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism. Uh, That's really just the basic overview. Of course, I hope that you guys get the idea, but the word also became used as time went on to refer to abstaining from alcohol and sometimes meaning moderation and drinking. But as far as the period of time that we're talking about here, it meant totally abstaining. So then there's the temperance movement, which is not the same as prohibition. That's a whole other discussion, but this is definitely... A precursor to that whole era, which happened later on from 1920 to 1933 in the United States. Again, I'm sure we'll catch up to that later. The temperance movement, though, was all over, in particular in English speaking countries. And it was less about committing a crime and it was more about a social movement, even though, like I said, certain counties and states did pass laws to be dry. So there was legislation but it wasn't such a severe degree um, and wasn't as extreme as the prohibition. So there's actually still leftovers from the temperance movement today. And the biggest example being that you might live in an area where alcohol can't be sold in stores on Sundays. Some examples of laws that were passed on local levels that happened when the movement started gaining momentum were that in Massachusetts, it was only legal to purchase alcohol in large quantities. So this basically limited it only to vendors so that your average day, you know, average consumers couldn't just go and buy a single bottle because they wanted to have a little nip at night. And then in Maine in 1846, they became the first to pass a statewide no alcohol law. So the roots of this are, as you probably guessed, Christians, particularly Methodists and Baptists, And in 1826, there was an interdenominational group established called the American Society for the Promotion of Temperance. And, quote, thanks largely to lead from the pulpit, some 6,000 local temperance groups in many states were up and running by the 1830s. Having said that, please keep in mind that historian Ben Freeland points out, but in most cases, their motivations were social rather than theological. Nor did all its adherents advocate a total ban on alcohol. Many of them, in fact, weren't complete teetotalers themselves, but were rather, and especially in the early 19th century, focused primarily on curbing the production of whiskey and other hard liquors in favor of tamer tipples like wine and beer. But then there's also a couple of other groups that had big voices in the temperance movement. One of the big ones was actually women. The Women's Christian Temperance Union came together in the 1870s because, like we were talking about, alcohol was, um, you know, probably a cause of in certainly many cases, but added to family difficulties like domestic violence, spending all of their money on booze, And I didn't mention this before, but another big thing was that there were really high rates of work injuries and fatalities, especially in industrial settings. And this is due to on-the-job drinking. So if just general drunkenness wasn't keeping people from work, well, you know, then they're getting their arms cut off or they're dying. So women started this political organization and would stage protests, and they were entwined to a degree... Uh, with the suffrage movement, which was about the women's right to vote. And they were pretty successful in getting some things going in terms of lobbying for local legislation. And they also created an anti alcohol curriculum that, quote, reached into nearly every schoolroom in the nation. Another was, and, you know, this is pretty interesting the abolitionists. And for listeners who aren't in the United States, abolitionists were the people who were against slavery. And there's another quote here. Many abolitionists fighting to rid the country of slavery came to see drink as an equally great evil to be eradicated if America were to ever be fully cleansed of sin. So, like I say, in 1886, that's when Atlanta and Fulton County officially went dry and prohibited the sale of alcohol. You know what's not prohibited at that time? Cocaine. Cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? So he messes with his formula. He takes out the alcohol. He adds some sugar syrup, some citric acid, and he sells it as a syrup that can be mixed with water at the pharmacy. And it's marketed as Coca Cola, the temperance drink.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. Cause back then, and don't let me step on anything you're about to say, but. Back then, like the soda jerk, not soda jerk, that's what the guy who served it is called. But the soda fountains kind of had like shelves on one side where it was pharmacy stuff. So all these patent medicines and stuff like that. But then you could step to the counter and they'd mix up sodas and malts and stuff like that. Right. Yeah.
1: Yep. That was where, you know, the soda fountain was. They had their counter and they were giving you, you know, some carbonated water, tonic waters because of course that's all part of the patent medicines at the time where people are claiming that you have to, you know, drink this. There there was radon water that people were drinking, what were some of the other crazy things. You know, and it was all being mixed up by these pharmacists at these counters. So, he runs the initial part of his business right out of his home. His family worked in the delivery and the bookkeeping and there was a set price of 5 cents per serving. And at the same time, we get that name and the logo, which actually came from one of his business partners, Frank M. Robinson. Now, he ended up talking to Pemberton and saying that the two C's would look well in advertising. So he suggested the name and he actually penned out the script for Coca-Cola as we know it. I want to read for you guys an actual ad from 1886 that ran for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola Syrup and Extract for Soda Water and Other Carbonated Beverages. This intellectual beverage and temperance drink contains the valuable tonic and nerve stimulant properties of the coca plant and cola nuts, and not only makes a delicious, exhilarating, refreshing, and invigorating beverage dispensed from the soda water fountain or other carbonated beverages, but a valuable brain tonic. And a cure for all nervous affections. Sick, headache, neuralgia, hysteria, melancholy. The peculiar flavor of Coca Cola delights every palate. It is dispensed from the soda fountain in the same manner as any of the fruit syrups. And then it's signed J.S. Pemberton, chemist, sole proprietor, Atlanta, Georgia. Now, initially, the drink is used by and popular with middle to upper class white Americans. And this is because those were the people who could afford it. They were already self-medicating and licking their wounds from losing the war. And also because it was sold at segregated pharmacy counters. And it was pretty popular. There was, of course, the temperance movement. But it also had the sweetness in the drink since he added that sugar syrup. So it appealed to everyone, adults and kids. Because, again, you guys, they're giving the shit to kids. And they they really did a good job with the advertising. But what really kept the business going at the very beginning was how Pemberton ran things. And this was from, you know, the creation to the distribution of the syrup. He didn't actually invest in any facilities or in distribution. Instead, he made the syrup at his own plant, and then he shipped it out to contractors and to other affiliates who would mix it and sell it how they liked. So he created the syrup he would essentially send it off to the pharmacies and be like here's this sell it for 5 cents a serving that's part of the contract can't sell it for anything higher than that but you know you can mix it with the carbonated water with whatever just add it to shit people will like it you'd think that with all this going on that he's pretty successful you know i mean he's got that education behind him he's got his other businesses he's a, a war veteran but no he's not set for life Things are actually not going very well. The first year of the business, things were kind of rocky. They did not make a profit at all. Things eventually picked up because of aggressive advertising. Uh, You know, he really took a page out of the Vin Mariani where they had commissioned, you know, art and they had people speaking on behalf of the company. And sadly, right within these early years of the company, Pemberton was diagnosed with stomach cancer. So even as he was developing Coca-Cola and using that as kind of a boost with his self-medicating, he still suffered from an intense addiction to morphine. You use it, your body builds up tolerance, you got to use more and and so on and so on. So his increasing addiction to morphine, thereby needing more and more and more and spending money on it, you know, mixed with setting up the Pemberton Coca-Cola company left him in poverty. And so, as his health was declining, he sold off portions of the company, leaving a third of it to his son, Charlie, and John Pemberton actually died on August sixteenth, 1888. Following his death, um, there was a good amount of confusion, and there was fighting over ownership of the company, but eventually a man named Asa Candler ended up holding the controlling stakes and took over. And this was probably helped by the fact that John left his wife with pretty much nothing. So, you know, what was she going to do? And his son, Charlie, was also a morphine addict. Now, Candler, he was a very, very smart man. I'm not saying that Pemberton wasn't, but unfortunately, he had his addiction that kind of held his back and messed with his health. So Candler saw the benefits of advertising, he saw the benefits of merchandising, and he went all in. He created what are considered the first coupons for free samples of the drink at Soda Fountains. I thought that was kind of a weird, fun, interesting little fact. So all the people who clip coupons think uh, Asa Candler and Coca-Cola. And when you think about it, I mean, he's a pretty good drug dealer. <laughs> you give out coupons. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't think you'll find that uh, your typical uh, stereotype, the stereotypical dude on the corner. Hey, Anna. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, here's a 20% off. Okay, not exactly like that. But he's giving out coupons for people to try their first glass of Coca Cola for free. So you give them that first glass. They're like, hey, this tastes good. They get that buzz from the cocaine. And then they're like, I want more. So, you know, the first taste is free, but you got to pay when you want your next hit. So it's really no wonder that it took off. While he's in control, he actually eliminated the pharmaceutical portion of the business and just narrowed down the focus to the drink. And by 1892, Candler, along with Robinson, you know, the guy who came up with the name and the logo, and a few of their other business associates formed the Coca-Cola Corporation and they officially register it with the U.S. Patent Office on January 31st, 1893. He ends up expanding the business with syrup distribution plants opening in Dallas, Texas, and then a little bit further across the country in places like Chicago and L.A. They stopped selling it as a medicinal beverage, and they were pushing it as something refreshing and delicious. And this was honestly mostly due to Uh, the federal government taxing medicines. Now, the first bottled Coca-Cola was sold in 1894 by Joseph A. Biedenharn. And it was really because he saw an opportunity to bottle it and sell it to the lumber camps that were going up and down the Mississippi River at the time. And then bottling became widespread by 1899. You know, in the middle of all of this, there is some sad news. Pemberton's son, Charlie, died because of his addiction in 1894. So neither John Pemberton or Charlie, who were there at the start of the company, got to see the success that it would eventually become. And I mean, of course, we all know Coca-Cola today, so it did become a success. And this ended up being thanks to bottling, because now at this point, it could be enjoyed by everyone, regardless of class or race. And this is actually eventually what prompted the formula to change. To remove the cocaine. So, yep, it was racism. I don't know if you guys were catching on there, but racism did that. Wow. Yeah. So, you remember at the beginning when I was talking about Vin Mariani and Pemberton's coca wine, and how they were sold as these elixirs that were going to take care of troubles like impotency and anemia and melancholy. Well, that was all fine and good, as long as it was working for middle and upper class white people. When it came to bottling the drink and making it available for everyone, minorities and lower class people started getting the boost from the drink as well, you know, because cocaine is getting people high. And this is just not settling well with anybody. And it became a problem. So now a whole new demographic is becoming addicted to the cocaine in the beverage And this starts to prompt the regulation of cocaine. This is a quote from Grace Elizabeth Hale in an article from The Atlantic. Anyone with a nickel, black or white, could now drink the cocaine-infused beverage. Middle-class whites worried that soft drinks were contributing to what they saw as exploding cocaine use among African Americans. Southern newspapers reported that Negro cocaine fiends were raping white women, the police powerless to stop them. By 1903, Candler had bowed to white fears and a wave of anti narcotics legislation, removing the cocaine and adding more sugar and caffeine.
0: That is unreal. I had no idea. See, I assumed it was all like the government getting involved. I didn't. I had no idea that it was prompted by, oh, we can't have everybody feeling good. That's special. That is mm-hmm. insane. I had no idea. I'm blown away. I had no idea. Yeah, I think that's the kind of general idea that people have.
1: Cocaine did not become illegal in the United States until 1914 because of the Harrison Narcotics Act. And cocaine was taken out of the recipe for Coca-Cola in 1903. So it was really just because, like that quote said, they were just bowing to the fears that people were having because of the racism. But they didn't technically change the formula, and to this day, they still use the coca leaves, but they work with a business partner called the Stepan Company of New Jersey. And that company holds the only active license to import and process the coca plant. The cocaine is extracted and then sent to pharmaceutical companies who use it in various anesthetics, and the leaves are used then by the Coca-Cola Company. Because they are part of the flavor and the formula for that delicious drink that everybody loves. So, you know, there was drug addiction, there was racism, there was babies drinking cocaine. Let's finish this off with a few other (laughs) more positive changes that we can uh, appreciate through Coca-Cola. Outdoor advertising. So Candler, as I said, was aggressive. And he pretty much was like, let's put our name Let's put this shit everywhere. Is there a blank wall? Somebody go paint a logo. Is there a truck? Put a logo on the side. You've got an awning? We're putting a logo there. You want to write Coca-Cola across your forehead? He probably was down for that. He was all about having the name anywhere and everywhere that people would see it and recognize it and ask for it. Coca-Cola helped to popularize the image of Santa, but nope. I know somebody's about to jump in on this. They did not invent the modern image of Santa Claus. So feel free to share this factoid with your family or whatever other person decides to bring this up because it's going to happen. Santa had been changed from a religious figure to a more secular figure by the 1850s. And there were images of, you know, a figure that was considered Father Christmas or kind of a, a jolly fat man in uh, a suit that was usually red, green, or brown. And he was used in advertising early on, even in the 1870s. Coca-Cola started to use Santa in the red and white suit in the 1930s, and this did match their logo. But they were using it actually to boost sales in the colder winter months when people weren't always looking for a cool, refreshing beverage.
0: That makes sense. That makes perfect sense.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was very, very clever for them to tie the red and white for their logo and for Santa. But no, it's Coca-Cola did not invent Santa Claus, you guys. They also forged a relationship with the Olympics pretty early on. They sponsored the 1928 Olympic team, and that's a relationship that still goes strong today. It also served as a feel-good beverage during the war. Um, At the outbreak of World War II, the CEO swore that American servicemen would be able to get a cold Coca-Cola everywhere the war took them. And he actually was pretty good on his word with that. I mean, you were finding Coca-Cola all across Europe, even during the war, you were finding it in Japan. Soldiers, you know, they would arrive someplace and there was Coca-Cola waiting for them. And remember how before he joined the war, how Pemberton was busy with his labs and studying medicine to make it better?
0: Right. The herbal type stuff. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, he so he was, of course, studying, you know, his his plant science, but he was looking to make medicine better. And he actually did. His labs and facilities at the J.S. Pemberton and Company of Columbus were so great. They were so advanced that they're actually still being used to reform medicine and approve upon industry practices and solutions by the Georgia Department of Agriculture. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, I thought that was pretty impressive that he did, you know, he did modernize a lot. And he did make improvements on, you know, labs and how people were looking into medicines. He he just was more interested, you know, in feel-good medicines. So, you know, sorry about the cocaine, but yay for technology, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that is your story about Coca-Cola and Pepperton and how cocaine was used as a medicine. And thankfully, it's not so widespread anymore, at least not as medicine.
0: Well, and I was about to say it really is. It's a it's a great ingredient in topical anesthetic. It I'm pretty sure because it uh, contra amongst, you know, other I don't think it has a numbing. Well, it, it does to a degree. It's not the only thing. Of course, it's not like <laughs> they're pounding out cocaine in the ER and just slapping it on your skin and rubbing real good. It's not that. It's that it has that slight, like talking about numb tongue. Mm-hmm. That you know, it has a slight numbing because you know your tongue is so absorbent and the moisture and all. But so there's that slight numbing element to it, but it constricts capillaries as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I did read is that it's used for um treatments when they are working on somebody's eyes because it can it works so well to like numb the area and make it easy to work in
0: it's and it's very easily absorbed. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, that's why people snort it and put it on their gums and stuff like that. It's very easily absorbed, yeah,
1: but yeah, so i was I was really surprised by everything. <laughs> And I'm so glad that we've come such a long way.
0: (laughs) And that the temperance movement, it's always interesting to me how movements of that ilk prompt people to be more creative, Mm -hmm. which goes across both of our stories. Like everybody's searching for the magic bullet. And anytime a restriction is put, it kind of sparks innovation in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I was thinking too. Like as you told your story and the stuff from my story, I would have loved to have heard Kellogg and Pemberton together in a room. (laughs) You know, with with Kellogg being like, "Let's just eat cauliflower and have enemas and just eat the blandest, horrible food all day long, no sugar, no alcohol, no nothing." And then there's Pemberton who's like. Put some cocaine in it. Put some alcohol in it. Let's add sugar, caffeine.
0: <laughs> Toss it in. Drink it. Yeah, I mean, he had, I'm picturing him and Will Keith, like, looking at each other and then looking back at Dr. Kellogg and then looking at each other and like, you, uh, you want to blow this pot stand? <laughs> I would love to try some of your cornflakes, sir. Well, I would love to take a swig of that cola, sir.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That was good times. And I, yeah, it's cool how huh? it starts at medicine, and now we both enjoy them as snacks and beverages and mixers.
0: <laughs> All right, so you got a touch of Christmas there with the Santa busting myth, because yeah, that is—I'd heard that urban legend too—that that Coke's, you know, marketing department or whoever were the ones that made Santa as we in America at least know him today. So there's your touch of Christmas, but the Christmas episode is coming up. We've also got a spooky snack for you that's Christmas related. And Tiff and I talked about this. We ain't doing Krampus. We ain't doing the history of Santa Claus. We ain't doing the history of Christmas. Though I will say Mithras, we might talk about at some point, but not this year. This year we've got to really, I think you guys are gonna be highly entertained. It was Tiff's brainchild. I have to give all credit to her. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So that'll be your next full episode. Otherwise, I think that's it. Continue listening to hear in the outro how you can find us on social media and our email address, how you can contact us with ideas for topics you want us to cover and give us your own crazy, spooky, whatever stories. We don't care. They don't have to be paranormal or supernatural. They can just be crazy stories from your family or your hometown or anything like that. And that is all we got for now. You got anything else to add? Um,
1: No, just a reminder. Go check out the show notes so you can see all the little extras that are in there for the Kellogg's or for the Coca-Cola story and history. Because, uh, yeah, old vintage advertising
0: is... <laughs> Is it's something special <laughs> it is absolutely absolutely and I'm pretty sure I'll double check my files if it's not there I'll make sure it's in there I think I've got some of the vintage phrasing and I know I've got good pictures of the old apothecary bottles the original ones I think I have some of the vin vin mariani is that it vin mariani yeah yeah I think I've got a, a picture of that too but if not I'll hunt one down
1: which that still exists as a brand but of course there's no cocaine
0: amazing that they were giving it to children and they were, and you know they were probably bitching at the same time why are these children so hyper why won't they listen to what i say gee i don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah you know
1: instead of rub some dirt on it just rub some rub some cocaine
0: on it just have a swig of wine is the baby teething have a swig of wine give him a hit not give him a hit in the bottle you know <laughs> Are you having women troubles? Are you a woman? Are you just a woman? Is that where the wine
1: mom thing came from? (laughs) Probably. That was the start of the wine mom
0: movement. There you go. There's a movement for you. (laughs) So that's it. That's it. Yep. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you. Well, we won't see you at all. We don't see you ever. (laughs) You will hear us on the next episode. I went all delicious dish there. You did. Mm. I'm making a note right now. I will also add that to show notes as a bonus. Because it's Christmas time. Coming up on Christmas time when you'll hear this. You the sweaty balls. The balls. You gotta have the <laughs> sweaty balls. And a and a lot of people right now are going, what the hell? Well, you're gonna have to go to show notes now, aren't you? Good times. Good times. Good times.
1: Mm, good times. Mm.
0: That's it. That's how we're ending it. Cause we have no sign off anymore. Yeah. Send in suggestions for sign offs, but for now, good times.
1: Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy.
0: Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms. And you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.